You're listening to The Dealmaker's Edge with A.Y. Strauss, diving deep into stories behind commercial real estate leaders. Hello and welcome, everybody. I'm here joined by the one and only Jonathan Pratt, who's currently a senior vice president at Capital One. And he's the co-head of a nationwide origination team, closed over $3 billion in commercial real estate financing over the last few years, financing all major asset classes. He has a special way of looking at deals coming from a real estate family. He thinks like an owner. And in 2022, he's won the Globe Street Rainmakers Award. Very exciting. And also, it'd be hard-pressed to find somebody more passionate and knowledgeable about how big data and underwriting and lending and deal-making all coalesces. So, John... Really, thank you for being on Taking the Time, and we're excited to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm really excited. Well, we may as well kick it off. Maybe you can start off by giving your background, how you got started in the business, where you grew up. Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, I currently live in Salt Lake City, uh, married with three young kids. So you know we're in the fog of war with children. Uh, we got three kids under the age of seven. But um, grew up in Washington, D.C., like you said, commercial real estate family in D.C. I went to BYU out in Salt Lake City for undergrad. It took me six years to graduate because I skied way too much. But after I left college, I started my career in development, did about three years in development. And in those years, I worked on about two deals. And I realized I didn't have nearly enough deal flow. So I moved on to the debt side, the more transactional side, and started my career in underwriting and then moved on to production. Started with Capital One, went to a shop called Bercadia, and then have uh, recently returned to Capital One and I'm really excited about it. Yeah, it's really cool. And your career has been on a fast track and you've got some really, really deeply loyal clients that you're really servicing at a high level. I know because I met some of them. Maybe talk about how you started to think about some of the data and technology and platform building in your career to date and how it's been impetus for some of your growth. Yeah. So it's interesting. I've found that throughout my career, commercial real estate really hasn't kept up with the same kind of technological innovation that we've seen in other industries. And that's always been pretty puzzling to me. I've got a brother-in-law who's in venture capital and just hearing about the deals and the innovation that they're doing on that side just sort of always made me question why things were different in uh, commercial real estate. That The developer that I worked for straight out of college, it was a pretty institutional shop, but they were still looking at data in a pretty rudimentary way. You know, There's a number of reasons for that. That's because when I started back in 2011, there wasn't high quality data broadly available, but even sort of these institutional shops don't really look at it. And my former shop, you know, they had a data science team that was working on it. And, you know, once I found that there were people within the industry that were trying to solve this problem, I jumped in and I was really excited to see how we could help solve the problem. And I just think that there's just so much growth opportunity of what we can do to better understand markets and better sort of allocate capital in in high growth areas or, or find opportunities through data. And that's what I'm really passionate and excited about. I think some of the largest institutional firms in the world are just starting to get their hands around it. But what I really want to do is sort of bring that type of data literacy and technological innovation really to the middle market clients who can't afford to have giant data science teams. You know, but those groups are a little bit more nimble, a little more opportunistic. And that's where I think like really data and deal making can coalesce and people can do things that are that are pretty special. Sure. And obviously you're in a huge shop with tremendous access to information and you have to be subtle and nuanced about how you leverage what piece of information to whom and fiduciaries all over the place. But maybe you can give some broad based examples about how you're thinking of data, what pieces of data, how data could be leveraged today in a way that somebody's not thinking about it creatively. Um, or, or perhaps a lot of misnomers. 
you know, people look at just population growth or they look at credit card statements. You have a lot of thoughts on the topic. I'd love to pull some of that out of you. Yeah. So I have a ton of thoughts. I'm going to try to like streamline (laughs) it and make it, uh, make it, make it linear because it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of circular references in the data world. First, I will say that there is a large misconception that once you compile large amounts of data, that it becomes this really clear picture that it's just everything's laid out in front of you and you'll, you know, a program will just tell you, hey, go invest in X. That's not going to happen. You know, data gives you a picture through muted glass and you have to figure out how to draw the lines between them. I think where real opportunities lie today, and, and there's a bunch of shops that are attempting to do this, primarily I'm seeing through the brokerage shops where they are trying to compile every possible publicly available data point and then put them into one system so that you can see all of the information laid out in front of you and you can start to draw those conclusions and find those those actionable insights. And what I think really the next step of it is, is doing that, but then adding proprietary data on top of it. You know, there's a couple of different ways that I've used the data and it's really to, to do more deals. You know, I have clients looking at specific deals and they'll come to me and they say, hey, what do you think about this from a data perspective? And I will go look at it and I'll look at all of the data points that are important to me. And I'll say, hey, listen, based on sort of the way I view the world, I think that your population growth, I think the new supply is going to be a real issue. I think that you need to watch where business growth, both in white collar business growth and blue collar business growth are going to go. And I, val- I evaluate the deal sort of based on those parameters and then give them to my client. And honestly, a lot of the time, that data just goes straight into their investment committee memos. But I think the next iteration of this business and the strategy that I like to use a lot is what I do is I sit down and I say, I look at sort of a global data set of everything that's going on in the country. And I said, okay, if I were a value add multifamily investor, what am I trying to solve for? And what data points are relevant to me for that equity strategy? And so I will look at Class C units per capita of residents that make less than 80% of AMI because you can't build new Class C units. And then I'll put on top of that what's going on with blue collar job growth because that's usually who's coming in to occupy those B and C units. So for a value add investor, I'm trying to figure out out how to incrementally de-risk my value add. So if I do my renovation and I don't get the premiums that I was hoping for, is market rent growth going to bail me out? Are the natural market forces going to incrementally de-risk what's going on. The same thing I do in uh, class A. If you're a class A multifamily investor, you have very different goals than a value add investor. Usually, uh, you know, I have a lot of family office clients and they just want to find good stable cash flow where they can find incrementally outperforming yield. And they're more worried about preservation of capital than highest yielding returns. I'll go across the country and I say, okay, what markets best lend themselves to buying class A where you can still find yield? And then I take those strategies to my clients and say, hey, listen, I know you're solving for an X return. And I think these are the markets you should be looking at. These are the reasons. These are three deals that are currently on the market in those markets. And here's the equity analysis on them. So it really goes from an inbound strategy of a client calling me saying, I have a deal to an outbound strategy of me saying, hey, I have an idea. I have an equity strategy you can capitalize on. Here's the strategy and here are the deals you can go after. That's really well articulated. That's very unique in the brokerage community. I mean, typically the brokers get the call. I have a deal. Get me the financing or I want to put an offer. Here's a bid process, et cetera, et cetera. We know what 
brokers are supposed to do, and they do a great job doing just that. But do you think the firms that will separate themselves doing as you're doing, sort of leading and guiding the transaction from the opportunity back into what the client doesn't even know they want, do you think that's going to separate the future of brokerage, whether it's in finance or, or just typ typical property listings? Or you think the clients on their end will have to just continue to solve? But clearly, if you can open up that information, you're differentiating yourself at a high level. I do think that that is how brokers are going to set themselves apart in the future. I think this is going to be a 15-year trend, but I think we're going to see far fewer brokers in the future. And it's the brokers that can uh, embrace technology and sort of come up with these data-driven strategies and these equity strategies in the debt space. Those are the ones that are really going to thrive. I look at sort of as analogous to the private wealth management industry. So in the 90s, we had stockbrokers who literally their job was to execute a trade. E-Trade comes along, Schwab comes along, all of these you know online trading platforms come along. These stockbrokers didn't go out of business. They just pivoted their business to become private wealth managers. And so now they're not getting paid for the transaction. They're getting paid for the idea. You know what I mean? And I think that the same thing is going to happen in our space. Talk about also... There's so many data points and obviously job growth and all the obvious ones, but what are some of the more nuanced pieces of data that, not to give any trade secrets away, but what are, what are some cool things you think about, which maybe some other folks may not be thinking about? I think that sort of what leads our team to be leading in this space is not only just cool data points that we look at, but really looking at how data points interact with each other. Like this is going to sound super basic. I know everybody sees it, but like watching what happens when new supply in a market goes over 7% and then watching historically what happens to rent growth for the three years after that. And so sort of understanding the, the macroeconomic forces going on and how we can look at sort of what's happened in the past and, and try our best to predict what's going to happen in the future. But some more nuanced data points. I mean, two things that I really like to look at are gross renter wallet share. So the amount of renters paycheck that goes to their rent. And then I love to look at the spread between class A units and class B units, and then class B units and class C. And that's really important because, you know, if you have a property or a market where the class A rents are only $150 per unit above where the class B rents are, most renters are going to say, hey, it's only 150 bucks a month. I'm going to you know, go up and get a higher quality asset. And so it limits the amount to which those class B properties can increase their rents, even if they are doing it, renovations and upgrading. I don't care how many kitchen countertops you switch out. You're not going to you know, beat an amenity package from a new class A building. And so there needs to be a significant spread. And a lot of people don't pay attention to that. They just say, oh, well, We'll put it in, we'll raise them 150 bucks and they're only looking at their class B comps. They're not looking at the dynamics of the class A market. And then there are some extremely cost burning markets like New York City, LA, San Francisco, but we're seeing the percentage of a renter's uh, paycheck, which goes to rent increase in these tertiary and secondary markets that have typically been lower cost of living markets. But the fact of the matter is, is it doesn't matter if 50% of your paycheck is going to rent in San Francisco or 50% of your paycheck is going to rent in Salt Lake City. There is a level to which, especially in these secondary markets, that they can't justify charging such high rents relative to what the average median income is. And so that's another thing that most people aren't paying attention to that we pay very, very close attention to. Next question for you. You're really on the bleeding edge of a lot of data, proprietary data and, and general market data, which you're sifting and sorting through. Do you have any prognostications about sort of where we are, um, either cycle level or 
asset class level, you're obviously watching multi carefully. I mean, how much longer can this continue? What does the next six, 12 months look like? Do you see any problems around the horizon? So I am a pessimist at heart. Uh, I do have some fears in the market, particularly in the acquisition space. I did have those same year fears two years ago, but you know, and I have been proved to be wrong. But you know, two years ago, people were underwriting big growth. You know, like let's take in a, a market like Phoenix, people were underwriting ten percent rent growth there, which has happened. But at that point in time, we had interest rates that were around three percent, and we had cap rates around you know four and a half to four. So on an amortizing basis, we didn't have any negative leverage in the market. On an IO basis, you were all good. But once that IO strip ran out, you were in negative leverage territory if that natural market rent growth didn't come to fruition. We're doing the same thing right now. People are underwriting 9 and 10% rent growth in Phoenix, and I hope that that can continue. But the difference is, is people are buying stuff at 3% cap rates, and they're borrowing at 3.5%. Now, and so even on an IO basis, we're in negative leverage territory, but everybody's betting that the, you know, that the market rent growth is going to bail them out. And I really hope that that happens. I'm not hoping for any, you know, anybody to lose money or a demise of the industry. But I just personally, from where I'm sitting, I don't know how that's sustainable. And I feel like people are a little bit out over their skis in terms of market fundamentals. There's a lot of 1031 money that's driving sort of these decisions where your returns are really low. I mean, I talked to a client yesterday that's looking at deal with a 7% IRR, but they're like, hey, listen, it's barely more lucrative than paying the taxes. And so, you know, we have to take it. And there's just so much capital in the market is driving those cap rates down and down and down. And then meanwhile, we have that upward pressure on rates from the Fed. And so I don't quite know how we land the plane on this market, but I hope we figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. Something will have to happen. What goes up must come down, right? Um, yeah. We've seen that before. Or at least steadily grows. Or, exactly, exactly. And hopefully it'll be as painless as possible um, if anything should happen. But uh, let me ask another question. I mean, you're, I think if I remember correctly, you're also... Um, you've been speaking at Georgetown, you, you speak to a lot of younger folks in the industry, you're, you're talking on tech, you're, you're involved in maybe some mentorship. Um, what are you telling these graduates today, you know, looking to you for advice about getting into the business, where they should go, where should they start their career? Yeah. You know, how should they map it out? I don't know if I'm the right person to be telling people this, but I, I offer my, uh, my advice wherever I can. We're a really young team. I, I just turned 34 years old. I'm the oldest person on our team and we have a team of seven. And so we're a really young team and we engage in mentoring a lot. I taught a class at Brigham Young University last night. And you know, the advice that I typically give to people is just become a master of the details. People, especially early in their career and especially people who want to get into origination, I find a lot of people that are getting into this business because they like client-facing roles. They want to be out. They want to be entertaining. And that's all well and good. But I think in the early part of your career, you need to just focus on the details, learn the fundamentals inside and out. And then, you know, the other thing for career development that I always say is just find your people, find the mentors that believe in you, that are willing to support you, find those friends in the industry that are your peers and confidants and stick close to, to your people in the industry. So, I mean, master the fundamentals and build really solid, important relationships. And what about the mental aspect of your career? You obviously get a lot done. I'm sure like everyone else, you have a lot of day-to-day -day stress. How are you sort of just 
dealing with it. I mean, you've got a lot of clients looking to you. You got a, you got a team, you've got a major platform. You've got a lot of energy, that's for sure. And a lot of data, <laughs> but you still have to juggle a ton. So, so how are you sort of like powering through that, that edge in your day-to-day life? Well, ADHD helps so that I don't get tired. <laughs> Spoken like but, a true deal, deal maker. Yeah, exactly. I'll be honest. That's been an evolving part of my career. When I started in my origination's career, I was on my own. My first year, I only did $5 million uh, in deals. Uh, my second year I did 250, but I was just like white knuckled the whole time. And I, I brought on a partner, uh, a woman by the name of Rosanna Bushaya, you know, she took a huge load off and, and, and we just have kept growing our team in terms of scale. And, you know, we went from 250 to 600 to a billion. And then last year in 2021, in a year that we switched shops for the halfway through the year, for the whole year, we did $1.2 billion. That was a, that was a big year for us. And so, you know, I have amazing people around me. That is honestly the biggest thing. I have a, a team that is incredibly supportive that helps me out a lot. I have amazing friends in this industry that are incredibly supportive and help me. But in terms of just like managing stress and like getting a handle on my day to day, you know, I hired my first dedicated admin this year and she has just like changed my entire life in terms of dealing with stress. She had a background where she was the executive assistant to a tech CEO here in Utah. And she brought a ton of practices and methods from the tech world that are apparently commonplace there to, to me to help me manage stress. So she brought in the, the concept of an accountability partner where she's like, listen, you just need to tell whoever you're working with what you need to get done today, not what they need to do for you, but what you need to do and have them hold you accountable to completing those things. And like, it's just little simple stuff like that, that has been hugely effective for me. I love that idea of accountability partner because talking to yourself will only get you so far, right? Um, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Who's your perfect borrower? Who's your perfect borrower and why? You know, I love the, the big clients that we have, you know, we do deals with federal capital partners and and bridge investment group and things like that. But what we really love to do is sort of take the institutional mindset that we have from our exposure to those institutions and really bring them to the middle markets, to the clients that sort of don't have those, that exposure and that kind, you know, those sizes of teams. And we want to lend the size of our team to some of these smaller borrowers who are just trying to, you know, get started or who are, you know, have a great business and are trying to grow. That's where we really come in and, and we're able to drive the most value for our clients. So that's our, that's our prime time client right there. It's been a tremendous conversation. We'll put your contact info somewhere associated with the podcast so people can reach out to you as far as questions on tech, big data, deal flow, et cetera. You're certainly somebody that people should be getting to know better in this industry. And you got an amazing career behind you and yet ahead of you too. So thank you again for joining. It's been great and uh, look forward to continuing the conversation real soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me.